When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. When we last left Walt Whitman, we left him with that amazing image that Peter's Y conjures up, which says, Whitman did not find his Americanness. He created it all on his own in his rooms on Skillman and Ryerson Streets, while toting up invoices for building materials, paying bills, buying and selling quickly built frame houses. Now, that put me in mind of two things. The first is uh, Ezra Pound's letter. I can't remember who he was writing to. After he first read, after he first met and then read uh, T.S. Eliot's love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, and he wrote an amazed letter to a friend which uh, said that he had met someone, a young poet, who had modernized himself on his own. And I think we can say the same thing about Whitman. He didn't need, even though he's the poet of the crowd, of noise and physicality, he actually created his American voice on his own in this strange and apparently unliterary way. Even Ezra Pound was thinking in what we would think today are literary cliches. You have to find your style or you have to find this new voice uh, where poetry is studied, I suppose, in college or or a place like that. The second story is uh, which has uh, which also has to deal with uh, the building of houses, I guess, or the painting of them is I remember hearing that uh, the original manuscript of William Faulkner's the sound and the fury is uh, has speckles and spatters of paint on it, and that was because while uh, he was writing the book, he was employed either painting a church or just painting the steeple. I can't remember what, or maybe it was a courthouse, but it's just a nice image right there. Another image or another phrase that I've brought up before is that... James Joyce said, as if to defend himself, he said that Bach led a very uneventful life. And he said that almost to defend his almost seemingly uneventful life. And we're going to pick up here with Whitman in a chapter that Peter Zweig calls A Copious Bookman. 
And in this chapter, he uh, puts the lie, if it's, uh, I would, perhaps it's not a lie on Whitman's part, uh, he puts the creative untruth to Whitman's claim to not have read a book, to not be a literary person. Uh, this is a wonderful chapter where he describes uh, what we can dig up of what Whitman had read and how, just how hard he worked to make it seem as if he had never read anything. But it begins with this quotation, Whitman's life was surprisingly uneventful, his younger brother George once wrote. And Zweig goes on to say, in the early 1850s appeared to have been as lacking in event as any. Family responsibilities, the house building Whitman undertook with his brothers and ailing father, some journalism, plenty of opera, city streets, and ferry rides, visits with his painter friends, summers at his sister Mary's in Greenport. None of the literary friendships we associate with the writer's shaping years. Only Emily Dickinson was as formidably alone. And uh, thinking of Joyce again, uh, Joyce who documented quite literally in a way that Whitman did not, his own life in his novels and in his letters, um, had the uh, had the literary friendships that we associate associate with a writer's shaping years, so that if we read uh, Richard Elman's biography of James Joyce or uh, I believe a man named Peter Costello, I think is the the author, uh, they have written books just about. James Joyce before he left Ireland or uh, his, his early youth, you can piece all of that together fairly well because he did have the uh, kind of friendships that we associate with them. And he was consciously not, uh, he wasn't consciously creating a voice in the same way that Whitman was. So that even as great a book as Paul Zweig's book is uh, about Whitman, there is still no real narrative thread except a sort of general one. And the general one is for, I'm on page 143 here, the general one is moving towards uh, the first edition of Leaves of Grass in 1855, moving towards Song of Myself. Uh, there are no, uh, there are no, or not nearly as many, of the colorful incidents or even a way of charting day-to-day -day what Whitman did the same way we can do with somebody like Joyce. And of course, uh, when we think of Joyce's wife, the meeting with Joyce's wife, uh, Whitman does not have an equivalent of that either um, to, uh, to help date things or to uh, hitch a narrative to his life. Um, just a way of thinking about things in that sense. And I like that he says only, well, I like that Zweig says only Emily Dickinson was as formidably alone. And in that way it is worth thinking about these two poets. Um, Whitman, who seems so simple and easy and very easily imitated, 
and very uh, outward bound, um, very public, very out on the street talking to people, supposedly. And then we have Emily Dickinson around the same time who doesn't seem that anyone can, she does not seem that she can be imitated at all when uh, it seems to me, in fact, neither of them can be imitated. It's just the character that Whitman creates and the long line that he creates that makes him that makes his own pose and his own voice seem uh, more approachable. Uh, but it's nice to think of the two of them actually being quite close because you have to imagine uh, being Walt Whitman having created this outward, uh, loud, uh, happy voice and character while not yourself actually not being loud or uh, outgoing or exterior at all. And especially when the book gets published and gets panned and is hated by so many people, you have to imagine what it must have been like to be someone who created, who recreated poetry in a way that few people ever have. You have to imagine how alone Whitman must have been having done that and still basically having gotten up in the morning and done his usual thing. Uh, he still walked down the street uh, and did what he did. In fact, it's worth thinking that uh, if Whitman had been more recognized than he was, if he had uh, received the fame and attention of a Longfellow or across the pond of someone like Tennyson, or even of uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson or, uh, or uh, Thoreau, it's possible that he wouldn't have had the time or the opportunity to go to tend to the Civil War soldiers uh, in the the end of 1862 when he did. So it is all of one thing. It all leads back to who Whitman actually was and what he was able to do with himself. So if we go forward a little bit here. So Zweig here is talking about Whitman's experiment uh, with his long line, and this is what he begins to say. Whitman's rhythmic experiment was not completely foreign to his contemporaries. Ruskin and Carlyle had both written a form of rhythmic prose that slid easily into poetry. As Whitman biographer Bliss Perry points out, the journals of Thoreau and Emerson are full of rhapsodic passages and sketches for poems reflecting a, quote, metrical and rhythmical lawlessness that was in the very air, although the classical training of Thoreau and Emerson doubtless made them hesitate to print these fresh, formless transcripts of emotional experience, end quote. And if that's true, especially about Emerson, we have to imagine that uh, when he received the first edition of Leaves of Grass in the mail, he must have... Uh, Maybe he was even a bit jealous that here was someone who was able to print his own fresh, supposedly formless transcripts of emotional experience. 
Zwei goes on to say, Whitman's flight from culture into nature had been enacted for more than a generation by other poets who promoted a new freedom from the chained cadences of the iamb or the ballad, and, in fact, a new prosody. We see how deliberate this movement was in William's, William Blake's preface to his prophetic books, which can stand as a largely unread manifesto for the prosodic freedom writers came to insist on in succeeding decades. And this is a, a wonderful passage from William Blake, who must have, been, must have uh, written this uh, 40 or 50 years uh, before Song of Myself. When this verse was first dictated to me, I considered a monotonous cadence like that used by Milton and Shakespeare and writers of English blank verse, derived from the modern bondage of rhyming to be a necessary and indispensable part of the verse. But I soon found that in the mouth of the true orator, such monotony was not only awkward, but as much a bondage as rhyme itself. I, therefore, have produced a variety in every line, both of cadences and number of syllables. Every word and every letter is studied and put into its fit place. The terrific numbers are reserved for the terrific parts, the mild and gentle for the mild and gentle parts, and the prosaic for inferior parts. All are necessary to each other. Poetry fettered fetters the human race, end quote, from Mr. Blake. And I don't have a copy of um, Paradise Lost in front of me, but if anyone does, uh, just go and look at the uh, little note that, uh, that Milton appended to the beginning of it, where he also says that he is uh, stepping away from uh, barbarous rhyme. I think he actually uses that phrase, barbarous rhyme, and only wants to use blank verse. And now, what, what is it? Um, about 200, about 150 years later or so, uh, about that? Yeah, about 150 years later, you have another poet saying, even blank verse is a bondage. And now we will unfetter the line completely. Um, and we can see today with the poetry that is written that uh, where that has gone. Um, and I'm not saying that this is an excuse to go back to rhyme or just a blank verse, only to show that uh, decisions have consequences and that uh, poets would do well to try just about anything. Uh, but also not be surprised what their imitators, uh, their imitators who are perhaps not as visionary as they are, might do with their discoveries. Uh, to get on with Zweig, here was a doctrine that Whitman could accept, if not from Blake, whom at the time he had not read, then from Macpherson's Ossian, which he remembered declaiming by the seashore in his youth, and from Carlyle and Emerson but most powerfully from the English Bible, which offered the full range of rhythmic effects Whitman found congenial. The Bible was still America's inescapable book. Excuse me. 
even to a family like the Whitmans with their tradition of radical politics and their anti-clericalism. From sources as different as Carlyle and the Young Americans, Whitman heard the call for a poetry capable of creating a new mythos and a new Bible. It is no wonder that he schooled himself in the prose poetry of the old Bible at this time of tumultuous interchange. In Bliss Perry's words, here was precisely that natural stylistic variation between the terrific, the gentle, and the inferior parts so desired by William Blake. Here were lyric fragments of consummate beauty embedded in narrative or argumentative passages. The parallelism which constituted the peculiar structural device of Hebrew poetry gave the English of the King James Version a heightened rhythm without destroying the flexibility and freedom natural to prose. In this strong, rolling music, this intense feeling, these concrete words expressing primal emotions and daring terms of bodily sensation, Whitman found the charter for the book that he wished to write." If Whitman was looking for a link between the prosodic freedom of the Bible and a voice that could range through the immediate age with the flexibility of a contemporary newspaper, he may have found it in a striking long poem commemorating the 1851 Crystal Palace exhibition in London. Written by the popular poet Samuel Warren, the poem is entitled The Lily and the Bee, a Lyrical Soliloquy. It was first published in America in 1851, which is where this chapter is mostly set in the early 1850s, and republished two years later for the opening of New York's own Crystal Palace exhibition, where Whitman spent afternoons and evenings for more than a year. The lily and the bee celebrates man, quote, man, a unity, amid his creations, during a day, a night, and an early morning at the Crystal Palace. As the poem ranges from exhibit to exhibit, it uses almost every stylistic device we now associate with Walt Whitman. In some cases, we seem to hear his very cadences and lines such as, Prussia, proud, learned, thoughtful, martial. The sweep and irregularity of the poem, its world-embracing stanzas, sliding from prose into poetry and back again, are everywhere reminiscent of Whitman's later broad manner. While writing Leaves of Grass, Whitman, of course, enjoined himself to quote, make no quotations and no references to any other writers, end quote. I've mentioned that here a few times. Uh, he wrote and rewrote his book to get out all the stock touches, all the literary echoes. It was a hard job, he remembered. Yet in the end, he covered his tracks so well that we have come to know him as a purely intuitive poet who had only an approximate idea of his best gifts, a man who had indeed begun afresh with all the mixed blessings of unliterate newness. Yet, not only did Whitman read, he scavenged, paraphrased, and pastiched. He looked alertly for hints to advance his poetic experiment, and he found them everywhere, 
in George Sand and Michelet, in inflated English bards who impressed the popular audience, in the Bible, which, despite his respect for Tom Paine's free thinking, Whitman read, if not religiously, at least pragmatically, as a quarry for tonal and rhythmic effects. We are unlikely to know everything Whitman read, although the list we have is long enough. Years later, in 1880, he visited the mental hospital that his friend Maurice Buck directed in Ontario, Canada, and Buck described him sitting in the library with a dozen books open before him, not so much reading as savoring ideas in terms of style. I like this scene of Whitman at his reading table. He was not so much a reader, then, as a gleaner. He read widely, if not always profoundly. He was like the, quote, young giant of his eagle editorial some years before, nourished by a life-giving air of words, of print, which fed his independence. Whitman wrote the following comment in the margins of an article entitled Thoughts on Reading, which he had clipped from the Whig Review and annotated repeatedly over a period of years. Quote, All kinds of light reading, novels, newspapers, gossip, etc., serve as manure for the few great productions, are indispensable, or perhaps are premises to something better. End quote. Whitman might be describing his own reading habits here. He was not, he was not, a self-sufficient bard, quote, letting nature speak without check, end quote, or ignorant of voices that expressed similar ideas and strove towards similar effects. Whitman lived in a cultural air full of hints and suggestions. More than most writers, he mulled them over until they became part of his own nature, and he drew on them deeply when it came to articulating his art not only deeply, but variously, mingling the diction of bad poets with the excited arguments of literary nationalists like Margaret Fuller, whose famous taunt he remembered 40 years later. And this is a quote from Margaret Fuller. It does not follow, because the United States print and read more books, magazines, and newspapers than all the rest of the world, that they really have, therefore, a literature End quote. And then uh, Zwei goes on to uh, quote some of uh, Whitman's early poetry, and he says, No wonder Whitman had to work hard to eliminate the literary echoes from his poetry, the nature that he let speak without check, as if he never read, quote, such a thing as a book, end quote was surprisingly compounded of books and more books, was fed liberally by the press, was left fallow in a mind saturated by the voices of American public life and American public speech. Whitman was right in his canny way to underplay specific questions of influence and source. He was lying, but he knew what he was saying. In those early years, he had not merely been susceptible to influences. Rather, he had soaked them up. His very lack of formal education had left him free to read without regard for standards, 
taking from Aeschylus as well as Frederica Bremer, from Emerson as well as from Fanny Fern. There is something glorious and bewildering in Whitman's aesthetic sympathies. Excuse me. Yet they are his signature, and they helped create his remarkable style. It's just a wonderful passage of coming to that conclusion. Let's see here. So earlier in the book, earlier in the book, Paul Zweig mentions that one of the places uh, Whitman liked to visit was a uh, uh, a museum in Manhattan. I think they, they said it was near, um, oh, I, can't, I can't even remember the name of, uh, what is it, uh, T.P. Barnum's, one of his places in Manhattan, I think. And uh, this was a man named Dr. Henry Abbott, who had uh, been an archaeologist in Egypt. And I believe, uh, as Weig says, he unsuccessfully tried to sell a bunch of the things he had found. When he had no takers, he set up a museum in the middle of Manhattan. And one of his, if not customers, one of his favorite visitors was Walt Whitman. And Zweig has this to say about Whitman's visits there and the effect it had on Whitman's view of history and America. As Whitman walked among Dr. Henry Abbott's wonderful relics and read the books Abbott suggested to him, such as John G. Wilkinson's The Manners and Customs of the Ancient Egyptians, Glidden's Ancient Egypt, and others, Whitman was awed by the immensity of human time. Men had lived and died, built cities, written books, obeyed laws, quote, 3,000 years ago, 5,000, 10,000 years ago, and probably far back beyond that. Before Abraham, Homer, and the Greeks, there had been man in all his ordinariness. Egypt, at the dawn of time, had been a kind of America. And here uh, is a quotation from Whitman, quote, In the country parts were agriculture, roads, canals, conveyances, barns, implements, cattle, machines. In their cities were officers, streets, aqueducts, manufacturers, public institutions, caves, markets, amusements. They not only had books, but these books were plentiful. Epics were common. They had novels, poems, histories, essays, and all those varieties of narratives forever dear to people." End quote. Uh, although for the listeners of my series of great myths on ancient Egypt, We'll forgive Whitman uh, and early Egyptology for not knowing that uh, some of that isn't quite true. They didn't have their epics or their narratives in the way that we think of them. Uh, Zawai goes on to say, In time's vanishing perspective, Egypt stood for the buoyancy of man, the survival of his works, in particular his art, through eras beyond imagining. All his life, Whitman would muse about lost masterpieces and forgotten genius, civilizations risen to a pinnacle and then erased without a trace. And I have to ask, did he muse about these things all his life because he thought he himself might be forgotten? Nineveh and Babylon had survived as mere names, 
How many in the earth's backward infinity had not survived at all? Song of Myself contains a romance of immense numbers, such as sex sextillions of infidels, quintillions of stars, trillions of winters and summers, a few quadrillions of eras, a few octillions of cubic leagues, end quote. Only in Hindu epics do we find such a scale. But Whitman need not have reached that far to conceive his romance of numbers. Measurable immensity was one of the passions of the 19th century. Only 70 years before, a Scottish gentleman, farmer, and scientist, James Hutton, had exploded the biblical chronology, which had counted 6,000 years since God's seven days of creation. On his farm near Glasgow, Hutton had guessed that the earth's mountains and valleys, its cliffs, riverbeds, and beaches, had not appeared fully formed on the third day of God's busy days, but had arisen with unimaginable slowness from the actions of wind, water, and earthquake. According to the new science of geology, not 6,000 years, but many millions, maybe even a few, quote, quadrillions of eras, had matured the gargantuan nature that Thomas Cole and his Hudson River School painted in their primeval landscapes. Nature was old in its youth. Its powers of renewal were charged with the measureless miracle Whitman describes in his poem, The Compost. In this ferment of renewal and change, it would not be surprising if the few known eye-blinks of human history had been preceded by other civilizations now lost. Death and forgetting were a sea upon which floated the fragile arcs of known time. Seen from this shoreless prospect, art was the human equivalent of nature's infinite powers for self-renewal and change. Whitman saw Egypt as mankind's first collective poem, its first complete embracing of nature's high and low, of man and animal, of life and its extended aftertime, death. Now, what would have been amazing is, uh, I believe that the painted Ice Age cave of Altamira was discovered only a few years before Whitman's death. And it would have been uh, pretty incredible to, uh, if they had known what it was and Whitman had had a chance to hear about it, what would he have said? about the painted caves of Altamira. Zwei goes on to say, the idiom of a culture hangs together in unexpected ways. As the romantic poets hungered for the infinite, meaning a limitless upward aspiring of the psyche, the geologist and the astronomer supplied palpable and measurable infinities, enlarging all space and all time. As a journalist and lover of progress, Whitman had no trouble accepting the prodigious advancements of technology that were reshaping his world. The steam engine and the steamship, the telegraph, the motorized rotor press, the transatlantic cable. William Wordsworth retired to the Way Valley to tuck himself into changelessness, but Whitman 
was not shy about change. How could he be, when the very streets of his city underwent a dance of change from year to year, even month to month? So that, if uh, Zweig is painting uh, an accurate picture here, um, it's not so much that it's not so much that Whitman was. It's not so much that Whitman was new, or that anything he had to say was new. It was only the way in which he was uh, expressing it. That is what was new. Um, let's see here. try to do a little bit more here before the night is up. This has only been a half hour. I can begin with a beginning of a, of a new chapter here. When the transcendentalist Bronson Alcott rode the ferry over to Brooklyn to visit Whitman in the fall of 1856, he noticed an unmade bed with a full chamber pot under it and three pictures, a Hercules, a Bacchus, and a Seder, pasted on the rude walls of Whitman's bedroom. Alcott half-jokingly asked which of these pictures stood for the new poet, and Whitman, with an evasive shrug, seemed to say all three. Years later, this sort of memory irked him, for in time he came to think of himself no longer as a natural man, one of the roughs, but as a reassuring, prematurely old father, the good great poet he thought America needed. Something Alcott did not mention is a large, nondescript trunk, maybe the one Whitman took with him on his trip to New Orleans seven years before. But it was somewhere around, probably serving already as a repository for Whitman's past, a kind of substitute memory. In it, he deposited his odds and ends of manuscript, bundles of receipts, the articles he tore out of magazines, a file of his old editorials, pocket-sized notebooks made of folded paper, in which names and addresses mingled with book titles, scraps of poems, and anything else that drifted into his sargasso of written bits. This was the trunk that Whitman had had his mother send him sent on to him in Washington when he set up there in early 1863. It was his one solid belonging in his drift from one rooming house to another during those Washington years, and it migrated with him to Camden, New Jersey, where, during the last years of his life, it spilled over onto tables and chairs so that to the visitors to his room on Mickle Street Whitman seemed to be drowning in paper, and indeed there there are pictures of uh, an aging Whitman, uh, like in an old rocking chair, just in a sea of paper in his room. Um, not only did he hold on tenaciously to these fugitive scraps, he seems from early on to have lived with his pen in his hand. For years this was his secret. The one thing he did not want to be or look like was a man of letters. 
He wanted his poems to sound as if they had come on their own, in the spare time left to him from merely living. An air of slowly moving flesh, a kind of garrulous ease in public, sitting next to the drivers on streetcars or in the cafe or bar that he would visit called Faf's. This was how he wanted to be known. Writing was his secret because the poems were not supposed to be literature. Yet Whitman wrote all the time. Not only poems, but notes for lectures he never gave, stray opinions on various subjects, the names of young men, usually working men or soldiers, with rarely a personal note, quote, slept with me, end quote, raising the obvious question but not really answering it, since the phrase had not yet become the euphemism for sex that it is today. By the early 1850s, Whitman began to accumulate literary notes scrawled on scraps of paper or in homemade notebooks of a few pinned-together pages, or in thicker-bound notebooks, usually pocket-sized and therefore probably carried around with him on his frequent excursions around the city. With the doggedness of a self-taught man, he accumulated notes on the great writers of world tradition, he collected articles on the history of the English language, and he compiled a personal handbook of vernacular expressions often with a note reminding him of where he'd heard them spoken. Very rarely are these reams of notes made on odds and ends of used paper personally revealing. They are never intimate. Their connection to Whitman's published work is spotty, yet he wrote them tirelessly, as if he needed this daily buckshot of words, this flotsam of language however trivial. For a while, during the Civil War, the role of the notebooks changed as Whitman poured into them his impressions of the hospitals, often while he sat in the long whitewashed rooms beside dying or suffering boys whom he thought of as his sons. During these years, when he served as a volunteer nurse in the Army hospitals around Washington, Whitman felt that his private life and the life of the nation had become one. The hospitals, excuse me, the hospitals were the secret of the war. They were its inner life, so to speak, and Whitman moved through them, soothing, helping, and writing. Later, in 1875, he published his jottings in Memoranda During the War, and then, in 1883, in his compilation of autobiographical notes called specimen days. Having tried for years to form the notes into a real book, at last he gave up, deciding that their spontaneous, disorganized aspect was a good thing, a way of rendering into language the elusive shape of events, without any overlay of artifice or any cultural lie. And here's a quote from uh, Specimen Days. If I do it at all, I must delay no longer. Incongruous and full of skips and jumps, as is that huddle of diary jottings, all bundled up and tied by a big string. The resolution and indeed mandate comes to me this day, this hour, to go home, untie the bundle, reel out diary scraps and memoranda just as they are, large or small, one after another, 
and put them into print pages, and let the melanges lacking in wants of connection take care of themselves. It will illustrate one phase of humanity anyhow, how few of life's days and hours, and they not by relative value or proportion, but by chance, are ever noted. Probably another point, too, how we give long preparations for some object, planning and delving and fashioning, and then, when the actual hour for doing arrives, we find ourselves still quite unprepared, and tumble the thing together, letting hurry and crudeness tell the story better than fine work. Uh, it's reading that it's it's worth uh, commenting that um, this is this is how Whitman wanted his poetry to seem at least at first. You think again of something like Song of Myself, which is a run-on of uh, fifty, sixty, seventy pages. He wanted it to seem unconnected, um, and he wanted the connections to take care of themselves. Um, this is what he wanted his poetry to be, but of course his poetry was not that. His poetry was worked over into fine work, while it was his prose that uh, he allowed to be hurried and crude, and yet both do tell uh, astounding stories. Uh, Zweig says, with these words prefacing specimen days, Whitman turned into literature his wayward jottings a miscellaneous stew of notes fresh from the hurried pressure of events. And we think of Melville exalting midway through Moby Dick, quote, God keep me from ever completing anything. This whole book is but a draught, nay, but a draught of a draught. passages here. When Whitman revised Song of Myself for his 1882 edition, he added a sort of gloss to the first lines of the poem, which he said, I harbor for good or bad, I permit to speak at every hazard, nat nature without check with original energy, which is what I was just saying. Uh, it isn't all just original energy after all. Uh, these added lines tell the reader how to approach this puzzling text, which spills erratically down the page in long, flag-like lines, shifting elliptically from theme to theme, image to image, over 50 undivided and apparently indigestible pages. Whitman is saying, in this poem, you will hear nature speaking. That is why it is unliterary, uncrafted, for nature's language is a spontaneous utterance. Nature knows only the present, never the past or the future. My poem, therefore, is like the crest of a wave, billowing into the present with no echo of its beginning, no foreshadowing of its conclusion, that is to say, no form, as life itself has no form. My poem is, in fact, not a poem, but a shoreless utterance, the most satisfying analogies for which are the open road, or the mind-stretching expanses of geological time and astronomical distance. By the time Whitman added these lines to Song of Myself, he had backed away from the extreme provocation of his first edition. The punctuation has been conventionalized, a 
scattering of thematic hints, such as the one I have quoted, have been added. And above all, the 50 pages of packed language have been skillfully divided into 52 numbered sections. By 1882, Song of Myself has found its way, found its way partway back into literature. But Whitman might have described the original 1855 version as incongruous and full of skips and jumps. He might have said its passages reeled out of his notebooks, just as they are, large or small, one after another, into print pages, letting hurry and crudeness tell the story better than fine work, which made it maybe, quote, the most wayward, spontaneous, and fragmentary poem ever printed. While this description is literally true of Specimen Days, which was strung together out of notebook entries, it tells another sort of truth about Song of Myself. Later we will see how thematically controlled and artful Whitman's greatest poem is, its apparent lack of form becoming a new kind of form. Yet the poem, and most of Whitman's writing, has has effectively resisted the sort of critical intelligence lavished on other poets of Whitman's stature. It does not comfortably divide into a sequence of related parts. Its themes, even its rhythms, seem too casual to support interpretation. As the poem slips through the hands of readers who have no such trouble with Wordsworth's prelude or Blake's prophetic books or Eliot's wasteland, it seems to insist that nothing can or should be said about it that it is simply itself, nature's unparaphrasable outpouring, God's other book, and therefore fundamentally different from a mere poem. To its first readers, on the other hand, and to many of its later critics, a song of myself seemed truly to have tumbled pell-mell out of Whitman's trunk. To a conventional literary eye, Clutter and nature can resemble each other, yet it is this fragmentary, elliptical aspect of Whitman's poetry that made it seem modern, its unprepared shifts in tone, its maw of a long, unambic line that digests the unpoetic without a missed breath, all those qualities which Whitman meant when he called his method indirect and contrasted it with the narrative method of poets he saw himself replacing, such as Shakespeare, Milton, or Scott. Only by indirection could the entire man, and not merely his tellable actions, be expressed in language. Indirection, elliptical and idiomatic, this was the democratic and truly American method, for it addressed itself to an obscure well of sentiments and impulses which every man, no matter how ordinary, carried within him his own complete nature. Is it too much to say that all of modernism sprang out of Whitman's trunk, as it did perhaps out of those other pell-mell masses of privacy, those trunks, that the 19th century turned into famous anti-books, such as Emerson's journals and their decanted essences, his essays, uh, of Delacroix or Amiel, or the monuments to a lifetime's probing of the intimate rhythms of thought and feeling. Out of these grossly shaped boxes of words came the idea of a form that would be no form, 
words that would perform the ultimate mimetic act by pretending to be and trying to be life itself and all its unravelings. Proust's Joyce's epic trunks of language devoted to the miraculous ordinariness of man's inner beings. But then we come back to Whitman. By the early 1850s, the sheets, shreds, and snips had begun to accumulate in Whitman's trunk. There were copies of his early stories, newspaper articles that he had written as early as the Sundown Papers of 1841, and his editorials for the Aurora in 1843, some of which he updated for use in the Eagle and later the Brooklyn Daily Times. He even took images from them for Song of Myself. There were articles he tore out of magazines and annotated repeatedly all throughout the 1850s. There were also masses of clippings from newspapers on apparently anything that caught his eye. The description of a California bell dated 1848, natural and wild, athletic, dark-skinned, or an account of pigeons somewhere in Indiana billowing in thick clouds, so that all a hunter had to do was shoot straight up into the air to bring down birds by the hundred. There were clippings on swimming and Turkish baths, personal longevity, diet, anything having to do with health. He annotated a book on Qatar, the bronchial system, and emphysema. There were clippings on the proper training for boxers. On the ages of 40 to 60 is the true prime of life, uh, which, if true, is good news for me. And on the compatibility of hard study and a healthy body. On the back of a Fowler and Wells book, The Science of Swimming, uh, Fowler and Wells being uh, the phrenological friends of Whitman's and publishers, he pasted the advertisement for Henny Gibbard's gymnasium on Broadway. When, in the late 1880s, he came across a scrapbook of these clippings, among the odds and ends scattered across his floor in Mickle Street, he mused to Horace Traubel, and here I will end with a quotation from Whitman. He says, quote, It is a strange miscellany, a hodgepodge, some of it only pulp, some of it very vital. Curious, rejected reviews, critiques, odds and ends of newspaper gossip, all of it in the past, the far past, gathered together fifty years ago and on and on from that time for many years. I have always had it about me as a book for personal reference. What has that particular book to do with leaves of grass? Horace Traubel asks. Oh, Whitman says, everything is full of its beginnings, is the ABC of the book, contains the first lisps of the song. Here was my first tally of life. Here were my first tries with the lute. In that book, I am just like a man tuning up his instrument before the play begins. Any comments? or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.